And I'll be honest, as we are embarking today on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through chapter 6 and verse 9, the material contained in these verses can produce some anxiety for a preacher. There's a number of reasons for that. These verses have not always been taught well in the church. Some of the material contained in them is highly charged in our day. I trust it has been through history. It certainly is now. People have strong feelings about some of the stuff we're going to consider today. People have a wide variety of takes and opinions on it as well. And people react very viscerally to it. My hope and my aim as we consider Ephesians 5, and following is to be clear and to accurately and faithfully explain what's in the text and then to apply it to us. And if that's going to happen, we're going to need God's help. I am going to need God's help. So we're about to pray. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. And maybe as you've opened your Bibles or as you have turned them on, you will join me in a brief word of prayer as we ask the Lord for his help. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning as always in need of you, in need of your spirit and your ministry in our midst. Our prayer is simple, that you would give us soft and receptive hearts. We pray that you would continue to drive us to your son as the only hope of our salvation. And we pray that you would continue to make us more like him. And we pray for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've said multiple times already, sermon text today, Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9. But we are actually going to begin our time and our consideration this morning with Ephesians 5 and verse 21. You can put your eyes on that verse. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This verse is the header. This verse is the driver. It is the verse that we should see as the lens through which we need to view Ephesians 5, 22 and following. So we're looking at Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9 through the lens of Ephesians 5, 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a call for mutual submission, one to another in the church. The relational illustrations that Paul is going to give, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, do not subvert that calling to mutual submission, but rather they help us to better understand it. Out of reverence for Christ and because of him, we all submit ourselves to one another in various ways. We watch over one another. We confess our sins one to another. We correct one another as that's required. We go to our brothers and sisters when they sin against us to make that known and to seek reconciliation. We all do all of those things, and we do them out of reverence for Christ. So now let's read the text together, beginning in Ephesians 5 and verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. We thank God for his word. I want to give this message in two large parts. Two parts. Part one, I want to consider the entire passage, what Paul is doing, and how we should understand it. That's part one. And then in part two, I want to take each section, each of the relationships, one at a time. And so we're going to begin with part one, which is the broad, large consideration of the entire passage. So there's a huge question that we need to answer if we're going to make sense of this text. The question is this, is Paul giving us a general principle in Ephesians 5.21 and then speaking to three specific groups of people in the church in an isolated way, as though there are these like three silos of submission that he's going to consider? Or is he giving us a general principle in Ephesians 5.21 and then teaching all of us principles of submission using three different sets of relationships to do that? I think, as I have studied the text, and you have it in front of you as well, I think it is the latter. That he is giving us a general principle in verse 21, and that he is teaching all of us what submission looks like using three different sets of relationships to do that. Now what this means is that while wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters can glean things from what Paul is saying specifically, We all can glean things from what Paul is writing about these various relationships. It's a both and, not an either or. There are things that wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters need to hear, and we all need to have our ears open to every word of this. It's not as though Paul is saying, okay, I'm talking to married people right now and nobody else needs to listen. Or I'm talking to parents and children right now and nobody else needs to care about what I'm saying. Or I'm talking to slaves and masters right now and everybody else can just tune out. There are things 
friend, hear me. There are things that you can learn from Paul's words to wives and husbands if you're not married and if you never will be. There are things that you can learn from Paul's words to parents if you're not a parent and never will be. There are things that we can learn from this entire passage. None of us in this room are slaves, praise God. And none of us in this room own another human being, praise God. But we can learn from what Paul says to slaves and masters in this text. In other words, all of this, every word of it, applies to every person in the room. There is specific application to the relationships in view, yes, and there is general and broad application to all of us in the church. Now, as we continue to think more about this passage and what Paul is or isn't doing, remember this, that the Bible does not offer a play-by-play on marriage and parenting. doesn't. The vast majority of what the Bible has to say to husbands and wives or to parents and children or even, in this case, to slaves and masters is not found in this passage or even in passages like it. For example, if you go to the Bible looking for a playbook on marriage, you're going to find a handful of texts. Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 7, maybe Genesis 2. There's some, a few others we might sprinkle in there. But if you do that, you will miss the vast majority of what the Bible has to say to you about being married and about being a husband or a wife. For example, the takeaway for husbands and wives from the verses on marriage that we're going to consider today is actually very simple. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Now, that's great, but that is a tip of the iceberg when it comes to what Scripture says to men and women, to husbands and wives. And here's the thing. This is important. All the other stuff, like that 99.99% of the stuff that the Bible says that's relevant to your marriage, the Bible says it to men and women, meaning that it applies to everybody. We often go to the Bible like it's a medicine cabinet, you know? Like, here are the verses on marriage, here are the verses on parenting, here are the verses on this, here are the verses on that. That is not how the scriptures should be read and used. The Bible is full. Not only is the Bible about the message of redemption accomplished through Christ, but underneath the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ in the place of the sinner. The Bible is full of exhortations to every believer. There is not, this may sound controversial, but it's true. There is not a male way to be a Christian. There is not a female way to be a Christian. There is not a parental way to be a Christian. There's not a childish way to be a Christian. No, we are Christians who happen to be male and female. We are Christians who happen to be husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. We are in Christ, every one of us, and fundamentally that is our identity. And because we are male and female, husbands and wives, parents and children, that's going to mean some stuff in certain situations. Amen? It will. 
We're going to do things as men and women, as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, as sons and daughters. And there are going to be certain aspects of these relationships that are specific to those relationships. The exhortation to love and patience and humility and gentleness, whatever, might look different in a marriage or in a parent-child relationship or in a boss-employee relationship than it does elsewhere. And that's fine. But the call to live in these ways with love and grace and charity and patience and humility and the like, the call to live in these ways is to Christians in general first, and then we apply them specifically to the various relationships we have. I think this is how we should read and understand even these verses. I think that's what Paul means to communicate. In these verses, Paul is not sort of leaving and abandoning everything that he has written up to this point to write us a treatise on marriage or a treatise on parenthood or a treatise on the relationship between a slave and a master. No, in the context of everything he's written about the gospel and about grace and the church and our life together, he's teaching us about submission and what that looks like in various sets of relationships and what that means for the church and how we live together. His aim is to help us, the church, understand submission to one another. And certainly, if you're married, if you're a parent, you will glean specific things from it. All of this that Paul is doing goes back to chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. The exhortations to humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All of this that he's writing here goes back to the early verses of chapter 5. where We are to be imitators of God as beloved children and to walk in love. None of what we are considering today is divorced from those fundamental considerations of how we live in the church in light of Christ and the gospel. I've taken the time to do this this morning before we even get into the text itself because I don't think this is how it's often considered in the church. And it matters. The text, as you can see, breaks down very simply into three sections. Three relationships are considered. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. So we're going to take these one at a time in the second portion of the sermon that we're getting to. And in each of them, I'm going to try to explain some things. I'm going to try to clarify some stuff, what they're saying, what they're not saying. And I think it will become clear what it means for the specific people in view. In other words, I think it's going to become clear like how this applies to you if you're a husband or a wife. It's going to become clear how this applies to you if you're a parent or a child sitting here today. And I also trust it will become clear how the principles considered apply to every one of us. So listen that way. Listen for yourself. Right? If you're married, don't be sitting there listening for your spouse and throwing elbows. Right? Listen for you. If you're a parent or a child, listen for you. So now, part two. Again, three sections. We'll take them one at a time. Number one, wives and husbands. Wives and husbands. We're going to look at verses 22 through 33. Now, from the outset, let's make a few things clear. We are made in God's image as human beings, and we are made in his image male and female. It's not up for debate. It is fundamental. The fact that we are male and female is God's plan, it's God's design, and it's good. 
As male and female, both being made in the image of God, we are equal in essence. We are equal in dignity. We are equal in value. Yet, there is a distinction between men and women. It's true that the church, in thinking about the distinctions between men and women, has often been more informed by cultural notions than it has the Bible. That is true. And at the same time, if we seek to erase all distinctions between men and women, we are not being faithful to the Scripture. Hear this. This is kind of my synopsis of boiling this down in my own mind. As men and women, we are equal. We are not identical. As men and women, we are equal. We are not identical. All right, now, consider with me as well. Consider how the fall has wrecked God's original design for men and women. The fall of man, original sin, how it has wrecked God's original design. Now, I understand God's sovereign. He wills that sin exists. He created the world with Christ crucified in view. I mean, amen and praise God. This isn't a sermon on the divine decree and the will of God. But track with me. The fall has wrecked God's original design for men and women in various ways. Men in a fallen world tend to dominate, abuse, neglect, and use women. They tend to lord over women. They tend to oppress women in an obviously selfish way for their own ends. This text, in what Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exhorts us to as husbands, is the exact opposite of that posture. In cursing humanity in Genesis 3, God said to Eve, and thereby to all women, that her desire would be against her husband. Though her husband, God said, would rule over her. There's that dominance thing, right? But your desire, Eve, will be against your husband. There is enmity and strife in the relationship. There is enmity between wife and husband. And this text today, the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is going to exhort wives to something that is completely opposite of that posture of enmity and strife. So, this is important track here. For husbands and wives, what Paul exhorts us to is the opposite of what the curse has produced in us. This shouldn't surprise us at all. This is quite true in literally every area of our lives in Christ. The exhortation of the scripture, the exhortation of the apostles by the inspiration of the spirit is to something the exact opposite of what our flesh naturally does, of what the curse has done to us. We've been considering the old man and the new man for weeks now. Don't do what you used to do because it's not who you are anymore. This text is more of the same. Don't divorce this passage from the old man, new man stuff that we've been considering. All right, so now let's think more specifically about the calling to husbands and wives in these verses. What is it? It is very simple. I'll mention this maybe later. It is sad that what we have done is take a passage like this and codify it into umpteen principles of authority and submission. It's not what we should do. The message is plain, and it's good. Let's look at it. Let's consider it. Husbands, quite simply, are to love your wife. Wives, you are to respect your husband, and you are to submit to him. Now, submission has been completely jacked up in the way that it's talked about. 
And I mean that mainly in the church. It's not been talked about well. Submission does not mean weakness. Submission does not mean that you just do what your husband says all the time. That's dumb. It is. Submission does not mean that you don't say as a wife what you think. I mean, your husband and your family need you to say what you think. And it doesn't even mean that you're not assertive in doing it. Marriage is a symbiotic relationship, friends. Husband and wife together manage a home. Husband and wife together raise children. Husband and wife together do this thing. And at the same time, the husband is not the wife, and the wife is not the husband. For the husband, he is called to sacrifice, to lay himself down, to love his wife as he loves himself. And given that he is his wife's head, to use the language of the text, he ought to have this posture. Not that he lords that over his wife, but that he is her servant. Consider the words of Christ to every disciple. Words of Jesus to all of us, this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever would be first must be a slave of all. That verse, those verses from Mark 10 and the other synoptic gospels apply to every relationship we have. In verses 25 to 32, Paul gives the illustration of Christ in the church. In doing this, let me just, again, I feel the need to say some of these things. In doing this, in giving this illustration of Christ in the church, and saying that marriage points to it, what he is not doing is telling husbands that they need to be Jesus for their wives. Or that they functionally are like Christ for their wives. If that's true, God help every woman in this church. He is not telling husbands to be the redeemer or the savior or the covenant head of his wife. There has been a lot of damage done by irresponsible and bad theology taking principles of covenant headship that apply only to Adam and Jesus and then overlaying that on the marriage and family dynamic. It does nothing good. Paul is not saying in using this illustration of Christ in the church Husbands like Jesus did for the church, you need to sanctify your wives. Again, if that's true, God help every woman on the planet. He's not saying you need to literally be the one who cleanses your wife by washing her with the Word. That's absurd. Only Christ, only the Holy Spirit can do sanctifying work. Now as a husband, I pray that we all are used as instruments of sanctification in the lives of our wives. But I pray the same in reverse, that wives are used as instruments of sanctification in the lives of their husbands. So what Paul is getting at is something else. He's getting at the principle of love. Husbands love. And wives respect your husbands. Specifically in verses 25 and 26, 27, consider Jesus and what he did for his bride, the church. How great is his love for her? Well, he laid himself down for her. He gave himself for her. 
He quite literally died for her. And here's the thing. He left heaven to do all of it. He denied himself in that way. He saved her completely. He has sanctified her and cleansed her. He has accomplished her redemption. He has seen to it that she, the church, will be holy and blameless. She will be pure. We will be pure. When we are presented alongside our Savior at the end of history. Jesus has done all of that for us. Your salvation, my salvation, finished, complete. We can rest. We have peace. We have joy. We have assurance. Jesus has done all of that for us. And so husbands, consider Christ and love your wives. That's the message. Now, verses 28 to 32. Let's look at these verses more specifically. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. We are in him. We've been united to him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's citing Genesis 2.24. However, Paul says, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband in verse 33. But then verse 32. This mystery, Paul says, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery, friends, of verse 32 is the church's union with Jesus. That's the mystery. The church's union with Jesus is the great mystery that has been unfolding through history. Think about the letter to the Ephesians. Think about all that stuff that we considered in the first two, three chapters where Paul keeps talking about the mystery hidden for ages in God. What was it? Well, it's the gospel, right? It's salvation of God's people through Jesus. But more specifically than that, it's the salvation of the church, Jew and Gentile, united to Christ and to each other. So Paul is pointing back to the garden when Adam and Eve were made. Remember what Adam says about Eve when he first sees her? What does he say? He says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is of me. And the two become one. It's union with Christ that is the profound mystery of verse 32. And track with me for a moment. The union of a man and a woman as depicted in the garden which is now paradigmatic for all of the human race, woman being created out of man, literally being bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and then being united to him in marriage, this beautiful design of God is what it is and exists because the church's union with Christ was always the point. The union between a husband and wife points to Christ in the church. And that's why marriage exists in the first place. The takeaway? What's the takeaway? Like, boots on the ground. Brother, give me a handle. Verse 33 is it. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's the takeaway. Husbands, love your wife. Wives, respect your husband. 
As I mentioned before we even launched into the piece on marriage, we have sadly so overcomplicated this thing. We have taken away, like I said, dozens upon dozens, like 89 different principles of authority and headship and submission and all that, and we have missed the point. We ought not do that. These things that Paul gives are just so objectively good on the face of them. They are self-authenticatingly good. And they're so simple. They're so freeing. These are high-level things that should inform our posture in marriage. And the other things that should inform our posture in marriage are all the other things that Scripture exhorts every Christian to. So that's number one. Husbands and wives. Wives and husbands. Let's now consider number two. Children and parents. Verses one to four of chapter six. Children and parents. To children in verse one... Paul says very straightforwardly, in the church, children are to obey their parents in the Lord. And Paul says this is good. And it is. In verses 2 and 3, he cites the fifth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. Remember that God's moral law, as it is called, was written quite literally into creation. And then it was given to Moses on two tablets of stone. God's moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. And thereby, because it is in one sense the law of creation, it is transcendent. And Paul picks it up here. And he cites the moral law of God, the fifth commandment, exhorting children to honor their father and mother. And he makes the observation that that fifth commandment of the ten is the first commandment with a promise attached to it, highlighting how significant it is. So this is important. If we are going to honor our Heavenly Father, we need to honor our earthly parents. So young people, older people listen to me as well, but younger people sitting here today, I want to talk specifically with you for a minute. As you participate in the life of the church, as you are brought up into what we are doing, it is good that you would obey your mom and dad. Let's talk real about this for a minute. I know we have these conversations in the Purdue house pretty regularly. Every single human being, so again, young people, track with me. All of us are born in such a way where we all want to do what we want to do. We don't ever want to be told not to do something we feel like doing. We don't ever want to be told to do something that we don't feel like doing. We want to do us. We want to do our own thing. That is as natural as breathing. But here's the deal. Not only will that kind of a posture, you going your own way all the time, ruin you eternally before God, you going your way And doing your own thing all the time will not even work in this world. It's not made that way. If you live your life constantly just doing what you want to do, you will find that you are constantly crashing up against the authority structures in place over you. Every human being in this room, adult, 
down to the youngest. The oldest to the youngest is under authority of various kinds. We are under God's authority, and we are under various other kinds of authority in this life. And so, young people, one of the things that your mom and dad are trying to teach you, albeit imperfectly, they are trying to teach you that. That there are things that you need to submit to. There are things that you need to obey. You need to learn that submission is good. And your parents are trying to teach you that it's good that you learn to obey them so that you might learn that it's good to submit and obey in other arenas of your life. And ultimately, they are teaching you obedience so that you might learn what it's like even to submit to the perfect authority of your heavenly Father. Now, let's talk to parents a little bit. Verse 4. Paul says to fathers, but again, we can apply it to parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We can do this any number of ways, parents. We can provoke our children to anger by constantly just barking at them. We can do this by disciplining them out of our own frustration. We can provoke our children to anger by setting them up to fail. We can provoke our children to anger by not considering their frame. Consider how God is toward us. How compassionate is He? Psalm 103, 14. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That should inform us as parents. Rather than provoking our children to anger, we should bring them up, raise them. The language is the language of cultivation. We should raise them and cultivate them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So parents are entrusted not only with the bodies of little image bearers of God, we are entrusted with their hearts and their minds and their feelings too. So parents, let's reason together. Our children don't exist for us. I say that because that's kind of how our culture talks about everything. It exists for you. You have kids when you want to have kids. You have kids in order to feel fulfilled. Right? You have kids in order to kind of realize this dream and vision that you have for your life. Well, that understanding of having children, that it's about your fulfillment, will last a very short time. And again, you will be crashing up against the rocks of reality every day of your life. It should not be our posture that our children exist for our fulfillment and our good. Though they are a blessing to us, in one sense, we should understand that we exist for them. We are to be used of God as instruments in their lives. We have a calling, very serious calling, to teach our kids. Tenderness and gentleness and love are required. And in that kind of an environment, we teach our children the truth of God. We teach them God's law, that they might know good and bad, that they might know right and wrong. We teach them God's law so that they will know what will be good for their lives and what will wreck, ruin, and destroy them. We teach our kids the law, the law of God, that they might see themselves rightly and thereby be driven to Christ. 
We teach our kids the gospel. As we see them being wrecked and undone by the law, we hold Christ out to our kids. We teach them the wonderful truth of what Christ alone has accomplished for them. Of what Christ alone has done to reconcile sinners, all of us, to himself. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is good. Parents, do not provoke your children to anger. But rather, raise them, cultivate them, love and nurture them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. It strikes me, I hope it does you, as we've just made our way through thinking about wives and husbands and children and parents, how beautifully these exhortations of the apostle complement one another. Do they not? They hang together perfectly. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Parents, love, nurture, and teach your kids. It's so good, and it's so simple. Number three, let's consider slaves and masters together. Slaves and masters in verses five through nine. Now, before we go any further, I want to make a few comments about just the slavery piece in general here. So on this language of slaves and masters, I am not unique at all in saying anything that I'm about to say. Paul certainly, in writing this way, is not advocating for slavery. Nobody should understand it that way. As many have pointed out, this kind of slavery that would have been existing here in the first century in Paul's context is not chattel slavery. It's not the same kind of thing that we often think about. These slaves and bondservants had status as human beings, but hear me. It is also not a boss-employee relationship. Some people try to sort of dumb this down and make everybody feel better and say, well, this is just kind of like your boss and you as a hired employee. It's not the case. It's somewhere in between. These bond servants, again, had status as human beings. They were not property and chattel in that sense. But it is also not like your relationship with your boss. Paul is not advocating in any way for owning another human being. So this is an important consideration for us. It's important that we make distinctions between the redemptive kingdom and the common kingdom, as they are called. We are called, as citizens of the redemptive kingdom and the common kingdom, to love our neighbor. We are called to love justice and do kindness. However, our calling is not primarily to redeem the institutions of society wholesale. Our calling is to live faithfully within them. Our calling is to practice love and kindness and justice in the relationships that we have. That will, those will be in the church, yes, amen, and those will be in the society, both. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. Because people will ask, because they have this notion that Christians need to be redeeming everything. They will ask the question, well, why doesn't Paul just tell masters to not have slaves? Because again, I don't think that's what Paul's mission is. I don't think that's what he understands his mission to be. Paul, I think, is saying, given that these things exist, given that this is common to man in our era, here is how we live within this. Now, clarification. Lest we think that Paul doesn't care about slaves, so hear me. Lest we think 
that Paul doesn't care about slaves or slavery, consider his letter to Philemon. Many will be familiar with that. It's the shortest letter of the Apostle Paul right before the book of Hebrews. In that letter, Paul writes to a man named Philemon who owns a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus has apparently fled from Philemon and had been with Paul for a period of time. And so Paul is now writing to Philemon, who is a Christian, who knows Paul. And Paul is writing on Onesimus' behalf, the the fled slave. He's writing on his behalf to his owner. In this time that Onesimus has been away from Philemon and has been with Paul, he has apparently become a Christian. And now Onesimus is going back to Philemon, though Paul says he would have been happy to keep Onesimus with him. And then Paul writes these words to Philemon, again, the master of Onesimus. Quote, For this perhaps, the fact that Onesimus has become a Christian, this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he, has any, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So in street language, Paul is writing, or in common language, I don't know if I'm a street language, common language. As Paul writes to Philemon, he says, look, this man is coming back to you. You're his master. He's your slave. This guy has become a Christian. You're a Christian. This perhaps, brother, is why he has been away from you for a time, so that he might be saved, and so that he might come back to you not as a slave, but as your brother. And I am asking you to receive him as you would receive me. If he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. I'm confident. Remember, Philemon, that you owe me basically your eternal life because I was the instrument through which you were saved. I'm confident you will do what I say and then some. Implication that you're not going to treat this guy like you used to. I'm confident that you will do that. Oh, and by the way, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to come stay with you soon. That's Paul's message to this man who was a master of a slave. So we ought not think that Paul is just like, oh, well, slavery's fine and it's good. No, he is writing in a context where his mission, his concern is to speak to Christians about how we live in this fallen world we find ourselves in. Now, back to the text. Verses 5 to 8. Let's look at what he says to the slave or bondservant as it is sometimes rendered. He says to them, Obey your earthly masters. Obey them with a sincere heart as you would Christ even. Then he says this, Don't just do eye service. Have integrity, in other words, in what you do. Work as servants of Christ Doing the will of God from the heart. Don't work in a bitter way, in a resentful way. Don't halfway do your job. Don't just do enough so that it looks like you're doing what you're supposed to do. 
Be upright in how you work. Work as unto the Lord. Verse 8, see, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free, because you have worked as unto the Lord and not man. This is because God sees and God knows. We don't ever, this is just a generally applicable principle for every one of us. If we live our lives, friends, doing things in order to elicit a certain response from other humans, we will live a life where we feel constantly thwarted, angry, and frustrated. We do things first and foremost as unto God because he sees and he knows. And he is a God of perfect justice. Vengeance belongs to him, he says. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. We trust in a God who has, in one sense, in the the Lord Jesus Christ already and who will, consummatively at the end of time, right every wrong. Verse 9, to the master, what does he then say? The same applies to you, he says. Do the same to them. What's he talking about? Do the same to them. Remember that what you're doing, you do as ultimately unto the Lord, not man. This is because the Lord sees and the Lord knows. And so, treat those under you accordingly. But then he goes on. Stop your threatening. Stop it with your threats and your exacting, heavy-handed, hard posture. Operate with integrity and uprightness. Consider those who are under your authority. Don't lord your authority over them. Don't you know that the one who is both their master and yours is in heaven? So again, he's pointing the master to the ultimate authority. You are under God's authority in the same way that your bondservant, that your slave is under God's authority. That should affect how you treat people underneath you. Do you not know that the one who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that he is an impartial judge? Friends, one of the things that we rejoice in is that the Christian life is always lived under the banner of Christ and the gospel. So if you're sitting here this morning and as you're just thinking about the relationships that we've considered, you're thinking about marriage, you're thinking about parenting, you're thinking perhaps, you know, in a sort of secondary way about your job, your employee-boss situation, whatever that may look like, your vocation. And you're thinking, man, I have have really blown it. Well, take a number and get in line. We all have. That's not to exonerate anyone in this room, but it is to say that we all regularly bump up against the standards that God has and do not meet them. Two things are absolutely certain for every human being in this room. For everyone in Christ, these two things are certain. One, we will fail to meet God's righteous standards today. Two, Christ has paid for every failing and we are his forever. Take heart in that. As you think about your marriage, as you think about your parenting, as you think about your job, rest in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ there. Not just in some general ethereal way. Like, oh, I'm good with God because of Jesus. I have peace with God because of Christ and I have rest Big picture, but no, that means that you have rest and peace and all of those things, safety in every area of your life because of Christ. Paul has written the letter to the Ephesians in this way, that it makes, he makes it very clear that we always live the Christian life in the church together underneath 
the banner of Christ for us. This text, as I've already alluded to, has driven us to Christ again and again as we see how we have failed to live the way we should. This text has been used of God, I trust, to form and shape us in terms of how we think about our relationships and how we're going to live together. And then even in this last verse that we see, Paul rightly applies the law. Don't you understand that your master is in heaven and he's an impartial judge? If that does not drive us to Christ anew, I don't know what will. Because the thought that God is an impartial judge who only judges people on principles of righteousness is terrifying for a fallen human being outside of Christ. The only way that God could ever look upon wretches such as us and say, based upon principles of righteousness, enter into my joy forever is because of Christ and Him alone. Paul has not only begun the letter with gospel, as we are making our way to the end of this sermon series, he's going to end this letter with gospel. Next week in God's providence, it's Easter Sunday, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. The sermon title is Christ, the Armor of God. I'm excited for it. I haven't begun prep yet. Will this week. But Paul is going to end his letter by saying, oh, and by the way, we don't battle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we do. His takeaway, and so you need Christ. You need the helmet of his salvation. You need the, the breastplate of his righteousness received by faith. Saints, as we confess together all the time, we are weak and needy sinners, but Christ is a strong and sufficient Savior. So come to Him. Come to Him today. Cast yourself upon Him. And we're going to get to do that physically together in just a minute as we come to this table. He came for such as us. He gave us the table because He knew that we would need it. He knows you. And He knows you me. He is gentle. He is compassionate. And oh, how he loves us. So consider Jesus. And then, as you consider him, love and submit to one another out of reverence for him. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for your help again. We sometimes think that Somehow we need less help when the sermon's over than when it started, and that's not true. We pray that you would apply and drive your truth deep into our hearts and minds. Any good thing, any righteous thing that we are ever going to know, it will be because you have taught us. And so we pray that you would do that. We pray that as we have considered the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us today, as we've even considered the various kinds of relationships that we all have with each other, we pray that our consideration of Christ would drive us towards love and submission. Continue to work these things in us, we ask, and we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.